Ah, bringing back the old music. Going back all the way back to 2020. Back last summer when we started the podcast within a podcast. Focused on the U.S. presidency and the race for it. And we used to play that music and say, who's going to hear that music on January 20th? Will it be Donald Trump still hearing it? Or will it be Joe Biden? Well, today's January 20th and we got the answer. Hail to the chief. Number 46. President of the United States, Joseph Biden. Bruce joins us. He's in Ottawa. Smoke mirrors in the truth. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Peter. Great to talk to you. I've been looking forward to today for like literally four years, <laughs> and I can't believe it's here, and I'm I'm happy to be enjoying a little bit of it with you. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I got up early, was expecting... You know, I got up around 5.30, 6 o'clock, wanted to see who'd got made the pardon list. And that was kind of, you know, a lot of pardons, 143 of them. And, you know, I guess I mean, most of them, the overwhelming majority of people never heard of before. But uh, when you do the first glance through the through the list, you obviously the name that pops out is Steve Bannon, which uh, was a pardon from Trump to his to the guy who uh, may well have got him elected back in 2016, but uh, they'd had a serious falling out, and he was charged with on a fraud count and a number of things. Anyway, it just wasn't, you know, it wasn't the list that some people had been expecting. Like, there was no self-pardon for Trump himself. There was no pardon for all his, you know, collection of uh, sons and daughters. Um, And so it didn't, it was kind of flat. And then... You know, you go through the morning of the the kind of things that happen on the morning of inauguration, and it. I just felt, you know, after months of getting ready for this and all the debates surrounding this guy and what he'd done to the country and then the events of two weeks ago on the Capitol Hill riots, and then this day arrives where he's finally going out the door, last Time he walked out of the White House. Last time he got on the helicopter. Last time he gives a speech. Last time he gets on Air Force One. And it just, like, I don't know. I just found the whole thing kind of flat. And there, maybe it was, you know, the sort of relief that it was finally happening. I don't know. But it was between it and watching the coverage, which uh, I'll admit the coverage I watched was on all the, the, the networks that are clearly uh, no fans of Trump. Uh, and it was a very much sort of, finally, he's gone. Let's get him out of here. Kind of a tone to the coverage. Well, yeah, I'll be the yang to your yin on this, Peter, because <laughs> I got to tell you, I woke up and there was a spring in my step and I couldn't wait to see his pathetic crowd, to see, to listen to his pathetic whining one more time, and to watch this kind of loser slink off the stage after having to endure four years of constant nonsense, um, constant lying, constant blame-placing and finger-pointing and scapegoating and belligerence. And, and I love listening to those journalists beat him like a rented mule this morning. 
it was as though they they all checked their journalism badges at the gate when they went into work this morning and said, we're just going to take today to say what we really think about this guy. And I don't know if that's a good thing for journalism, but it was a good thing for me to listen to. It was exactly the content I came for today. And I'm looking forward to more of it as the day wears on, because this guy has put so much stress on the world, so much stress on his country. He's created divisions and risks and deaths. And it, it, it's, you know, I, I remember back to when Hillary Clinton said Donald Trump is about, he's the champion of a group of deplorables. And everybody said, and, and probably correctly from the standpoint of the political analysis, was that a mistake? Should she have said that? Did that cost her votes? Did that make people think that she was an elitist and a snob looking down her nose at all these people who are feeling disadvantaged by the economic times that they were living in? And, you know, maybe it was uh, a political error. Maybe there was a better way for her to kind of recognize what was happening and do something constructive about it. But if you wouldn't use the word deplorables to call those people who went up to Capitol Hill as insurgents, uh, a little over a week ago, what would you call them? If you listen to the people who still say Donald Trump was the best president the United States ever had, what is it that they're really saying? Is it they're saying that he they love the fact that he he dumped on all these football players who were trying to send a message about racism in policing? Is it that they wanted that? Muslim travel ban to exist forever. They wanted more wall against the Mexican rapists. Um, it's been a bad patch in American history. And today it's over. And I couldn't be happier. So hopefully that'll balance out a little bit of your sense of, I didn't get the lift I was hoping for, but I got plenty. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want anyone to confuse this with thinking that I was thought it wasn't, you know, somehow appropriate departure for a U.S. president. I mean, I, I I would have preferred, as I'd suggested on November 4th, that he'll just slink out the door and disappear. But his kind of pathetic attempt today to, to make it a some kind of a ceremony um, for a departing head of state. Now, he is a departing head of state, but he's a departing head of state disgraced twice impeached and he quite possibly is about to be convicted and never allowed to ever run again and everything else. But there were so many things about this, this day that were, were truly pathetic. And it started with the crowd at the airport. And, you know, there were not many people there. This, this guy loves a crowd. We know that. And in his defense, he's, he's had some big crowds over the years, not lately and certainly not today. And they were desperate for a crowd. I mean, they sent out invites to everybody they had an email for, I think, because they, the, the, some of them went to people who probably were shocked to get one. Scaramucci got one. John Kelly got one. Um, what's his name? The former uh, National Security Advisor uh, got Flynn. one. Not, not Flynn. The, um, what's his name? He wrote the book. Oh, I'm not. I'm drawing a blank, but yeah, uh, yeah lots of people. And lots of people got them, and, and and they were asked to bring five guests. So <laughs> like he was trying to stack the crowd, right? And so he, I'm sure, what must have happened because there was, 
there was this time, like he was supposed to leave the White House at 8 o'clock. The helicopter got there at 10 to 8. It was sitting there ready for him. You could see the Marines at the door, ready to open the door for him. No Trump. No Trump at 8.01. No Trump at 8.05. No Trump at 8.10. Um, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I know what he's doing. He's on the phone to Andrews Air Force Base saying, where the hell's the crowd? You promised Give me a crowd. People. There's nobody there. Yeah, you got to get, get them. more people out yeah. there. Yeah, and probably either that, that or they were stuffing a bag full of the monogram towels from the White House to try to take That's with them right. down to Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, or pushing out some new email fundraising thing. But he's um, no the circus left town, and I watched that that little ceremony out at Joint uh, Forces Base Andrews, and I thought, you know what, he ended kind of the way that he started he started being just badgering the media for not saying that he had the largest inauguration crowd ever even though it was obvious that he didn't and on his way out he chose not to participate in any of the normal activities that an outgoing president would and should do um, but I think he did that because he thought he was going to have a big turnout he was going to have all these people the MAGA people come and cheer him on and and bemoan his departure. And instead, uh, it was a trickle of people. Uh, it was a pathetic uh, excuse for an event. He had now weeks, months really, to plan what he was going to say when he got up on that stage. And after the 21-gun salute, which really looked like, what, a, what does a dictator uh, ask to have happened before he is kind of taken away to jail somewhere. Anyway, the 21 <laughs> but, but let me jump in on the 21-gun salute because uh, heads of state get a 21-gun salute. So, I mean, he didn't have to have it there. He obviously asked for it, it to happen, and, and he's allowed to have one. But I have, I've seen a lot of 21-gun salutes over the years, you know, for the Queen, for, you know, visiting presidents of the United States to Canada. Um, you know, and places all over the world. I've never heard a 21-gun salute go that fast. Fire, <laughs> bang, fire, bang, fire, bang. Like, I, I, I'd never seen one go that fast. There's usually, a, you know, a pause in between each one because it kind of drags out forever. But it, it almost seemed, I mean, maybe that's the way they, they do it at Andrews, but it almost seemed like the, 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 the artillery group that were firing these things were saying, get this over with fast. We're done it was it was hat. pathetic, just hurry? like all the other things about that. That yeah, odd yeah. Well, and then of course he had, you know, I don't know what speech we're going to hear this afternoon from Joe Biden, but I'm pretty sure it's going to have some, some great writing, some poetic language, some really inspiring phrases, and as you recall from the inauguration speech that Trump did four years ago, uh, I think it was former President Bush who turned around after the speech and said to whoever was sitting beside him, that was some weird shit. And it really was. It was a colossally weird inauguration speech. And here we are four years later. And for all of those, including me, who at some point thought, you can't be in that job for that long, surrounded by that many smart people, all of that information, and not get a little bit better. He proved that that's not true, that you can actually be even worse at the end of it. So he jumps up on this stage. Well, I shouldn't say that. He walked gingerly up the steps, the four or five steps to the stage. And the first things that he talked about, the first thing he talked about 
And his accomplishments was we created a space force. <laughs> and I just was shaking my head like. That's the one that's with the emblem that's a ripoff from Star Trek or Star Trek. something? Yeah. <laughs> it's not really a thing. And he went on from there to do his usual kind of scapegoating and claiming credit for everything that was going well and ignoring everything that was going badly. And uh, then the plane took off to the to the strains of My Way, in, <laughs> written by a Canadian, as uh, as you know. and Paul Anka. Yeah, Paul Anka. From, from your I, town, from Ottawa. <laughs> that's right. Last it, night there was Hallelujah. You know, it was Hallelujah all, last That night. was beautiful in the night last beautiful night. night. Very and moving the night. Canadian content both days. The whole thing left me with this. I, I was reminded of growing up in Valleyfield, a little town not too far from Montreal. And the Valleyfield had a hockey arena that seated about 3,000 people, mostly for junior B hockey games, which were mostly fights with a little bit of hockey in between. But every year, <laughs> once a year at least, the wrestling show would come to town and the whole town would jam into that arena. Every seat would be full. People would pay the five or $10 or whatever it was back then because watching Killer Kowalski and Mad Dog Vachon try pretend beat each other over the head with chairs and throw each other out of the ring and everything else, that was a circus that people loved and they knew it was kind of harmless. They knew nobody was really getting injured and that these, this wasn't really athleticism except, you know, stunt athleticism. Um, and people enjoyed it. And a lot of people came out for it. And I think the difference with Trump is a lot of people came out for it. And some people enjoyed it, but everybody else looked on in horror for four years. And now at least they have a chance to try to repair their broken democracy. And, and if there's any reason for optimism on my part, it is that there is this apparent schism in the Republican Party. Trump is talking about maybe there'll be a Patriot Party and I will run it. And Mitch McConnell is saying um, we might need to vote to convict this guy, uh, which is really a declaration of the Republicans are willing to take a hit if some people want to be part of another party, which is a very difficult thing to decide to do, but it's probably time for them, for that conservative party in the United States to say there are certain influences that we don't want to have as part of our, in our tent. Well, you know, there's obviously a lesson from this side of the border on when you start splitting the party up and it, you know, it can last for a generation or almost a generation as we witness when the, uh, when the progressive conservative party split into, you know, the, what was it? The first, the Canadian the Alliance party. and the reform party. And, and it was yeah. just, it kept them out of power for, well, for all the Chen years, Chen's, you know, three majority governments in a row. Uh, we're built on a split right. That's we're right. We're built yeah. on a split right. And, you know, you can see the Democrats, you know, licking their chops if, if the Republicans go this way uh, in, in terms of, of splitting their party. Um, but as you say, you know, that's what it may take to uh, shed itself of the, of the Trump era and the Trump image. What did you think of the the pardon list? I mean, well, deep down, were you kind of hoping that he would have done his whole family because it would have been such a great talking point? <laughs> well, you know, I uh, yeah, I think I probably was, but I also think there's no shortage of things uh, 
to criticize him for or ridicule his choices of. And I think that the reason he didn't do that wasn't because he thought he would feel shame in doing it. It was probably something to do with uh, what they want their future um, electoral opportunities to look like or whether or not that was somehow pardoning them would would put them in a situation where they would have to testify against him in some uh, future court action. I don't know, but I don't think he, he avoided that for virtuous reasons. He didn't find virtue last night uh, and, and say, you know, that's a bridge too far. I can't do that to the kids. I can't do that to my country. And also, in the midst of that, he did something else, which I don't think has gotten that much notice yet, which is that he changed a rule that he had put in place, which was to prevent people who work from him from going into the lobbying business. And, you know, you remember he, one of the many, many, many things that he lied about when he was campaigning for office, he's going to clean up the swamp. And he turned out to be the swampiest swamp dweller ever. <laughs> and on the last day, he basically looked at all of his staff and friends that he, you know, had worked with him and said, I'm going to give you a license to go and make money based on your knowledge of me and what I believe in and my people and who they are and what they care about, including in, in Congress. And, you know, we don't have a system like that here in Canada, thank God. Um, we actually have pretty stringent rules about that kind of thing here and very stringent rules, relatively speaking, about fundraising. But I don't think I can remember a swampier thing being done than a president on his last day going, hey, everybody, go out and make money uh, lobbying people in office after I've left. Forget about the laws that have existed to protect the public interest uh, against that kind of thing. I'd love to know what, uh, what Bannon has on him. Um, for Bannon to get the pardon uh, meant Trump had to forget a lot of things that have happened in the last couple of years, uh, including Bannon supplying the information for more than a few books. And in fact, one of the first ones that came out was that Michael Wolff book, which really crapped all over um, Jared Kushner. And all the stuff came from Bannon. Bannon admitted it. Wolf admitted yep. it. Yeah. I think some of them were even direct quotes. Um, and he, you know, and he dumped on Trump. I mean, he was, he was there in the summer of 2016 and was responsible in many ways for the turnaround in the Trump campaign that led to the victory, um, along with Kellyanne Conway. And I can't wait to see what happens with her. Um, but, uh, Something happened somewhere in the last little while. I mean, Bannon got himself in a lot of trouble. He was, you know, con uh, charged with fraud uh, in terms of uh, money that was being raised uh, for uh, political contributions. Um, and something happened there somewhere well, that he suddenly like got convinced me. that uh, he should pardon him. Look, I, I, I think that. Trump doesn't really believe that he has a future political career. But I do think he knows that he has financial problems. And I think that he takes a look at Bannon. And in Bannon, he sees somebody who ran Breitbart and may know how to set up the kind of media enterprise that Trump is maybe going to want to do to make money 
um, help finance his debts. Um, and Bannon also ran this, I mean, he was convicted basically of running a, a scam, a fundraising scam that mm-hmm. he was collecting money to build Trump's wall. So who knows what conversation they would have had, but it probably wasn't a deeply human personal rapprochement. You know, Steve, I'm sorry you said those things about me, but I love you. You are with me in the darkest days and, and I really care about you. He, he, to me, he's not built like that. He forgets a lot of things. He forgot four years of Mike Pence having to voice things that Pence surely didn't really want to say. And all of a sudden, Trump decides, I forgot all of that, and I want to be mad at Mike Pence now because he's not standing in the well in uh, in the in Congress uh, overturning the election uh, in my favor. So I figure with Bannon, it was probably, you know, economic like everything else. I think what we're going to find out is that there was some skullduggery around this pardon list. There were stories that have been running around about people selling pardons. And, um, I, you know, I heard some pundits on uh, that Hacks on Tap uh, podcast just yesterday talking about is, are we going to find out that Trump got a percentage uh, of the dollars that were um, transacted in exchange for those pardons. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it none of that would shock me, uh, given who Trump is and given what his scenario probably is right now. If he got any of the money, that would be illegal. You, there's no... Um, my understanding of the American law is that um, you're a lawyer in Washington, and I'm a guy who's in jail or has a uh, has a sentence... Uh, that I served and I want a pardon for that. I go to you and I say, you got to get me, you got to get me a pardon. You've got friends in the white house. I'll pay you $10,000 if you can get that for me. That's not, apparently that's not illegal. Uh, If you as the lawyer or you don't have to be a lawyer, but if you've got friends in the white house, if you then go to the white house, make the argument for the, for the pardon and say, Oh, by the way, I'll give you five grand if you can arrange this, that would be illegal, especially if you're dealing with the president. Um, but the initial payment isn't. Who yeah. was it? It was the guy, the governor of Blagojevich or whatever his Lugoyevich. name was. Blagojevich. Blagojevich. Blagojevich, yeah. Because uh, he took a payment, a direct payment for something. Was it a pardon or was it an appointment it was something or like something? That. Yeah. And didn't, that's what didn't Trump sent, pardoned him, by the way. I think he Trump did, did pardon yeah, him. Yeah, he did. He did pardon him. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, uh, you look at that list of not just the one today, but the, the well, stuff the thing of about late. Trump on, on this kind of thing is that he, he, this is a man who never released his income taxes uh, for recent years, right? Um, broke with tradition. Everybody sort of speculated at how good he was at uh, moving money around, hiding money, money laundering even. And uh, there really hasn't been evidence to convict him of that, but he has not made much of a case that he's not good at that. There are a lot of people who wonder where he got the money to buy some of the properties that he bought in recent years. And so it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't shock me if he had some sort of an understanding of how he could benefit from the issuing of these pardons, but that the, you know, some sort of a financial trail or a paper trail wouldn't be easily accessible or available or might never even be found out. Let's um, 
Let's turn the page. You've got me over my feeling blah about feeling good now, right? Yeah, feeling better now. Yeah. Feeling better now about that he's gone. And there were a number of things today to that happened that it, so I feel a little better. But let's turn the page to the new president. Where all the hopes and dreams of a lot of Americans and a lot of people around the world for that matter, who have missed an American leader assuming the role of leader of the free world in a way that kind of fitted with with the aspirations of their own countries and governments. Um, so Joe Biden becomes president, and right out of the gate, he makes he, he does a number of things, uh, and we can we can mention them. Uh, and I'd also like to talk a little bit about what the future holds for Joe Biden. Um, but, you know, the, the, the page has turned, there is a new president of the United States and everything kind of changes right away because there's a stack on his desk of problems that confront his country and the world, uh, in which he's going to have to start making moves on almost right away. Uh, so you were looking, you were flipping through those executive orders uh, that he's going to implement immediately, like today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and what do those tell us? Well, I think they tell us a couple of things. One is that um, he's putting an end to the Muslim ban, which was essentially, I think, designed as a race-baiting um, attack on Muslims to rally people who weren't Muslims in, you know, in Trump's direction. He said he's going to stop building the border wall, which, again, I think was a a kind of a Trump-style way to uh, to address the immigration question by describing Mexicans and and these uh, these poor folks who were who were coming up towards America from Central from Latin America as as threats as. Uh, kind of, a, you know, with terrorists kind of embedded in their ranks as uh, as almost vermin that were going to infect America. So it was a very, very divisive thing. And I think that what uh, Biden is doing with those two moves is saying, we're going to roll back the clock on some of these things that were essentially designed to uh, to drive divisions between people about faith and about race. And I think this is all to the good. I think he's got an important job to do there, and I think he should do it every way that he can, especially signaling that he is the anti-Trump when it comes to these kinds of things. But the other thing that really strikes me about Biden's approach in the last several days, Peter, is that we've become so used to Trump's presidency being the presidency about him. Every day it was about me, me, me. I did this. I'm the best ever. I've accomplished more than anybody else. Um, nobody else in his cabinet ever really got that kind of elevation of their reputation because he didn't like it. He wanted to make sure that everybody understood that uh, anybody who wasn't him but who was in his team were lesser individuals, were vulnerable. If they started to look like they were getting popular, they had to be diminished and maybe fired, and a lot of them were fired. And in contrast with the I, 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 me, me, me presidency of Trump, Biden, you almost never hear him talk like that. I 
don't think I can remember him saying anything that sound like a personal kind of brag since he was elected or even before that, for that matter. He talks about we, he talks about healing, he talks about bringing parts of the country together. He describes the people that he's appointed uh, or is about to appoint as really accomplished individuals who want to make a public, you know, want to contribute to public service. So I find that change is maybe the most important and welcome change is a move away from the personal strongman, I, 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 me, 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 to somebody who really isn't built to talk like that every day, even though, and this may seem ironic or strange to talk about somebody who's been in politics for decades, not to sound egotistical, but he is that politician right now who doesn't sound hyper egotistical, even though he's been around politics for a very, very long period of time. Here's here's my take on Joe Biden as somebody I've you know watched and covered for well since the mid eighties at least. Um, his first run for presidency was uh, was for that eighty eight campaign, I think, and it was it was a disaster. Uh, there was charges of plagiarism and stuff on uh, things, past speeches or things he'd written. Um, But it was always a guy who, you know, people liked. They spoke nicely about Joe Biden. He was never the perfect candidate for anything, really. Even chairmanship of the Judiciary Committee during the Anita Hill stuff. It was not a good time. Um. So anyway, he's never the perfect candidate, but ironically, he may end up being, he has the opportunity to be the perfect president. And I'll explain that. Um, here he comes into, he, you know, he was kind of the leading candidate in the earliest stages of the Democratic uh, race for the presidential nomination. And then he kind of faltered and then he got dismissed and people were saying he's going to drop out. He'll drop out next week. Or, and then there was the turnaround. Um, thanks to uh, uh, one South of the, Carolina, South Carolina, um, and then he, you know he rode the winning horse right through to the uh, the nomination, and then obviously through to the presidency. So he gets there, and now he is the president. And on his plate, as he walks into the Oval Office, if he's kept the resolute desk, the one with the Canadian history from the Northwest Passage which if you've never heard, I'll tell you about someday, but I won't get into it now. Um, Sitting on his desk are some of the biggest issues that have ever confronted an incoming U.S. president. I don't think, certainly in our lifetimes, anyone's had the issues that he's facing. A pandemic, more than 400,000 people dead. Vaccine delivery system in question going to have this pandemic. I mean, it's going to end another year or two at the most. It will end, but right now we're in the midst of it. So he's got that. But as it ends, the economy will bounce back. There's already some small indications of that happening, but it will happen. End of pandemic will be beginning of a new economy. Different economy than we've seen before, quite Mm -hmm. likely, but it will be better. Um other big ticket items, you know, climate change, what have you, uh, moving away from um, carbon. A lot of a lot of things happening that could end up if they if they go his way, 
could end up making him one of the most uh, successful presidents in the history of the country. I mean, when you consider what he's got coming in and where it could lead if he's successful, um, he's got a ticket to the the good side of the history books. Uh, And um, Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. I think that they, you know, it would be easy to say he'll get marked uh, on a Trump curve and it'll be easy for him to get a really good mark because Trump was so bad at so many things. But I I think that's uh, to diminish what skill set and aptitude and orientation he brings to the job. I, I think, and this is not just a couple of older guys talking to each other about this, but I think that one of the benefits for him uh, coming into this job, one of the benefits for America, maybe the world, is that he is older. He doesn't have a next act in mind. It's not a. There's no job after this that he cares about. Uh, he doesn't seem like the kind of person who's trying to amass a great personal fortune, and um, so he's probably pretty committed to, in one term, doing things that will put the country on a better path, solve some of the big challenges that he sees domestically, and participate in solving some of the big challenges that we all see around the globe. And and I think he, he in that sense, is that kind of steadying, um, not personally ambitious, thoughtful about public policy, relationship-oriented politician that even if people thought they didn't need him in February, it turns out he probably is exactly what what America needs right now. And even when I think about some of the tensions with Canada and the, you know, the current debate about the Keystone pipeline, it does kind of feel to me that this is a guy who isn't going to get combative with us about this. He's going to listen to what we have to say. He's going to make the decision he's going to make. He's going to explain his decision. He's going to try not to do it in a way that diminishes the interests of Albertans or of Premier Kennedy or of Justin Trudeau. He's going to try to do what kind of classic politicians used to do, which was if you need to win one, don't make the other guy have to lose uh, in an obvious way if you don't need to do that. Um, And so I think that's really quite welcome. I think that's kind of an essential skill set right now. And I, I agree that he's got a lot on his plate. But I also feel like, you know, if we whether we think about China or some of the other big risks, um, what we don't need is a hot-headed response. What we don't need is something that is designed to kind of shock people on Twitter and create breaking news every hour. We need somebody who's going to figure out how do we take down the tension. This is a giant economic relationship that China has with the rest of the world, um, and there are huge military uh, risks associated with that relationship too. So we need... We need a kind of a calming influence who's going to listen to expert advice, who's going to really try to be thoughtful about those things. And we also need that on climate change. And uh, we didn't have that with uh, Trump on either of those big issues. And I'm quite hopeful that that is who uh, Joe Biden will turn out to be. And I think it'll be good for Canada and good for the world if he does. The one other issue that uh, that is very much on on that desk for him um, which is not going to be easy um, to deal with because 
past presidents long before Trump have been unable to deal with it either. Uh, and that's the racial issue. Uh, that whole, that's not going away. Certain assumptions were made about progress last summer. And if real progress isn't seen by this summer, it could be very much in the forefront of the of the issues that uh, that Joe Biden has to has to deal with. He's not stupid. He's uh, well aware of that, uh, and I'm assuming that he's going to be uh, working on that to try and have something uh, to be able to put forward to the American people uh, before the summer arrives, or it could be a it could be another long hot one. Um, okay. Um, I should mention at this point, uh, Bruce, because we're both very uh, disappointed about this. I'd, I'd mentioned on Monday, and I think again yesterday, that um, Ian Bremer was going to join us for today. And Ian's the chair of the uh, Eurasia Group, which is a really well-known internationally group based in New York um, that gives advice and strategy uh, in terms of uh, various international issues and risk assessment. Um, and, uh, in fact, we did hook up with Ian this morning and, uh, talked to him for 25 minutes and it was a fascinating conversation. Uh, there was only one problem. I hadn't pushed the record button. Um, it, it wasn't a great line to start off with in terms of the technical quality of it. Um, but it was a lot better <laughs> if I'd pushed the record button. Um, and Ian, um, uh, he was gone before I, I discovered that, but he was at a, it was chock-a-block today, not surprisingly on inauguration day. So we're going to have to get him back. Uh, the discussion is still one that's very important to have, which is kind of the state of the world right now as a new president arrives on the scene. So I will, uh, I will beg uh, for his understanding on these things and we'll, uh, we'll try and get him back again, but we're uh, sorry to have uh, let you down on that. Um, but nevertheless, we still, as it turns out, had lots to talk about <laughs> uh, in, in terms of uh, this day and the, the history of it and the expectations surrounding it. Uh, so, Bruce, thank you, as, uh, as always, for the uh, podcast within a podcast, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth on this day. Thank you. Peter, what a great day to get together and talk about the race next door and the loser and the winner and where we go from here. Thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. No problem. And uh, where we go from this, obviously, is a march on to a Thursday and then Friday, which is the weekend special. Once again, I'm looking for your lines uh, from this week. This is a week of history, uh, and it, it may well have come out of the, uh, the inaugural address that uh, Joe Biden gave today. But look for that line, you know, that phrase – that may uh, stand the test of time. If it doesn't come out of Joe Biden, uh, maybe it came out of Bruce. Maybe it came out of me. Who knows? Um, look for something that you've uh, heard about this week. Didn't have to have been on the podcast. But if there's uh, something you heard that is uh, worth cataloging as a, uh, as a great line, uh, I'd love to hear it from you for this week uh, and the letters that I end up reading on Friday. Uh, that's it for now. We're going to close out on, uh, this is probably the last time you're going to hear this, uh, theme music used. Um, but it was a great staple for us through last summer and all leading up to this day. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks for listening to the bridge. We'll be back in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.